0: Hello, and welcome to Creative Life Lessons, a podcast that dives into what it takes to build a creatively fulfilling life and career. I'm your host, Lyle Schemer, and today we'll be speaking with Melody Gilbert, an award-winning documentary filmmaker who the Documentary Channel has referred to as one of the most fearless filmmakers in contemporary documentary cinema. Melody has directed 12 feature-length documentaries that have screened at prestigious film festivals, including South by Southwest, Doc NYC, and Hot Docs Canada. Melody has gained particular notoriety for her ability to unearth hidden subcultures. Her film, Silicone Soul, explores people who develop fulfilling relationships with synthetic companions. Her film, Whole takes a hard yet non-judgmental look at people who desire to become amputees. And Married at the Mall provides an eye-opening close-up of people willing to tie the knot at the Mall of America. Two films she's recently produced have gained national recognition. Beneath the Ink received an Emmy nomination in 2019, and Love Them First received the prestigious Alfred I. DuPont Award. Welcome to the podcast, Melody.
1: Thank you for having me, Lyle. That's a very nice introduction. Thank you.
0: Thank you, for, thank you for being on and making the time to chat with us.
1: Yeah, I can't wait to hear what you thought of some of my films, but that's coming.
0: Yeah, well, we'll, we'll <laughs> be digging into that in a bit. Um, I think we'll just start off by, you know, hearing a little bit about your professional journey. Um, if you could just kind of like walk us through how you started out as a documentarian and what's gotten you to this uh, present moment in time.
1: Well, I have to say the first thing, you know, I, I did not go to film school. So I didn't know anything about making films. I didn't know anything about documentaries. I started out as a journalist. And, um, you know, my original career when I first graduated was to go into TV news because guess what? You can get paid for telling stories every day. That's pretty good. Right. So and I did love telling stories and um, I did everything from on camera reporting to producing I worked for local TV stations and networks. I did all kinds of things like that. And I loved every minute of it. Um, But there came a point when I wanted to do more than short little stories like those minute 30 things you see on the news so that's kind of what happened i started you know working in these jobs and then if there was an assignment where you could tell a five minute story i always raised my hand and eventually that led to doing hour-long specials which essentially are documentaries and i kind of just taught myself how to do this and eventually i decided crazy enough that i could uh, try to make a living from it and i quit the tv news world um i did continue to do some freelance stuff on the side for many years but i quit the full-time tv news and then went into making independent documentaries on my own without knowing anything about the business really i just knew i love telling stories and the the other thing i did was at the same time i started teaching um at a university the university of minnesota and so it was kind of like a side-by-side thing it's like oh reinventing myself again you know
0: interesting um I'm curious, when you find a topic that you want to explore as a documentarian, do you begin with a sort of specific thesis in mind? Or does the real story just kind of like organically unfold through the conversations with your subjects?
1: Well, I mean, of course, the best thing about being a documentary filmmaker is that you don't know what you're going to discover. I mean, that is the beauty of it. Like if I, if I, if I couldn't handle that, I would do fiction. I'd write scripts and everything would be as I wanted it to be. But I love discovering this story and most of the time I have no clue what it's going to be or what it's going to look like. I just find an idea and I go, huh, that sounds interesting. And because I can shoot, I have my own gear. I've always, you know, have been able to film, I can just kind of get started without really think overthinking what is this going to be. It's like just start and usually it just evolves from there. I mean, you know, on occasion, there might be something I did in one of my films, like I had a bigger idea of what it might be, but most of them are just go on the journey. And then my films tend to be about that journey that I went on. You're going on it with me. So even though I'm not in the films directly, you're still discovering the same things I discovered as I went along.
0: Mm -hmm. So, so in a way it really is about, it really is about the journey and the journey Uh, is the destination.
1: Absolutely. And it drives you crazy sometimes because you don't know. I mean, I teach and I'm always telling my students like, they're like, well, how do you know? How do you know? And how do I know? How do I know? I'm like, well, you just keep going until you know you don't need to know anymore. Right. And then you can start putting it together. And then when you start putting it together, you're like, oh, I realize I don't know this and I don't know that. And I need to go find that out. And I need to interview this kind of person or I need to go to this event or this thing. And it's I mean, it's joyful. I love it. And I hate it. You know, it's both. It's very frustrating. But it's also like, you know, so much energy comes from that.
0: It's funny a, a friend of mine by the name of uh, Vincis Ruginis, who is a um, documentary filmmaker he had made a film called The Invisible Front okay. and it was about these Lithuanian freedom fighters mm-hmm. and he he basically it, it was sort of told through these these letters that had been unearthed and he spent years struggling to to fight, to make to make it work and and you know yeah. I I just sort of had like a front row seat to that agonizing process <laughs> and sweet. Uh, how how agonizing can it be? Yeah. Well,
1: I will tell you this, that um, I think my experience in TV news really, really helped because I am I can work fast if I need to. Right. Like, I can take a lot of information and distill it into something short and get a better grasp of like you know, what it is that the story is. And I think that background, I mean, I produced and directed and done a lot of things that I think a lot of my colleagues have done maybe two or three films in the time I've done maybe 10, because I think I just, I don't know. Um, yeah, I guess my early training was very helpful. And I mean, the painful stuff is still there. I mean, I'm in that right now. I've been working on something for 17 years right now. and. Wow. Uh, Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actually, it's 18 years now. And I mean, I'm, you know, I'm okay with that because it's a film that has developed over time and it needed that time to develop. But at the same time, I'm working on something else that's only taken a year. So, you know, there's, you're always trying to compensate. Like this one's driving me crazy. So take, take on something else or start down another path or help somebody else. I do a lot of producing for other filmmakers whose projects I believe in. And that's easier than starting my own from the beginning, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's my other journey. Like your friend who made this film you're talking about, he sounds like he was just, you know, engrossed in this one topic for a really long time. And I get that. I would never be able to do that at this point in my life. I have to be doing something else or I would go insane. So, I see. Yeah.
0: I see. Many of your films explore really bizarre subcultures. And as I mentioned in the intro, um, you know, Silicon Soul looks at people who, who find themselves in these really intimate relationships with dolls. And Hole looks at these folks that want to become amputees. So I, I guess the question is, like, how do you, how do you discover these, these niche groups and <laughs> that you're interested in learning about? And how do you kind of infiltrate them or gain their trust and, mm. and get them... Prime to want to tell their stories, which in a lot of cases can, you know, obviously be very personal. I was watching Silicon Soul this morning and, you know, the, the second subject, I, you know, his father disapproved of Oh yeah. <laughs> the whole thing. And um, I thought the Alzheimer's uh, or the dementia patients in the nursing home was a very different use case. But uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but like in, 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 some of the, in some of the other folks where it was a little bit more creepy, I mean, how do you approach people?
1: Well, first of all, I mean, just about silicone salt, I would like to clarify that they're not just dolls. These are lifelike, life-size silicone dolls that look real and feel real and cost over ten thousand dollars each. So it's not like when people when you say dolls, you know, people always like, Oh, you mean those blow up dolls? I'm like, No, no, this is a whole different thing, right? And it's a growing subculture, by the way. I mean, it's a you know, it's not something that's going away. It's actually you know, getting more popular, but we can talk about that. So your question was about the, um, how I, you know, how I get these people to, you know, open up to me. And I think, you know, one of the, the things about me is that I don't, I never feel like I'm getting somebody, right? It's really different. Like when I was in journalism, I even did some stuff for network news where I had to, you know, set up some shoots and morning show things. And you're always like, you getting somebody, right? I don't feel that way when I started film. I started film and actually the whole way through, I just want to hear like, why would you want to be that way? Or, you know, here's a chance for you to explain to me because I don't understand this and I really don't understand it. So why not ask people and have a conversation with them about it? And if they, you know, the the thing that's you know, for me, that's very helpful is that I'm an independent filmmaker. So it's not like I'm working for some of those, you know, sensationalistic shows like, um, well, you know what they are. Um, You know, I'm like, I'm like, I'm an independent filmmaker. I don't really know where it's gonna go. I like, I just want to start filming. And, and it's true. Like, I'm not making that up. Right. And then I'm pretty, I think I'm like, not very intimidating. I'm kind of like a you know, I'm a small person and I carry like a little camera, sometimes in a tote bag. I don't have a lot of gear. It's just me, my little camera. And then like usually a wireless microphone. And so when I do show up to film it, I think people feel comfortable, right? Because they're just like talking to me. I don't try to make the technology like the thing between us. And that's usually how it starts. And then once I meet one person, then I Meet another one, and someone says, "Well, you're not so bad. So why don't you talk to my friend so and so?" And that's exactly what happened with Silicone Soul.
0: Okay, so I'll ask you this next question. Um, this goes, this digs deep into Silicone Soul, actually. And uh, as I was watching it this morning, um, this was a new question that came to mind, which is, what do you think that this film tells us about the human capacity for self delusion?
1: Ha! <laughs> Just the opposite. What do you think this film? Tells you about our capacity to love.
0: Well, you know, when I was watching it, when I was watching it, I uh-huh. couldn't help but I couldn't help but think of um, what was it? Castaway, Tom uh-huh. Hanks.
1: Exactly. Oh my God, I was I was speaking to a psychology class yesterday on campus, and this exact same thing came up. The Castaway, he's got is it the soccer ball, right?
0: Right, Wilson. Wilson. Yeah,
1: Wilson. Exactly. <laughs> and then there's the other one with. Um, Who's got the phone? There's another one that falls in love with his phone. I forgot what movie that is. Oh, that was uh, uh, that was a
0: Spike Jones film with Scarlett yeah. Johansson's The Voice. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah right, yeah.
0: right, right, right.
1: And then, and then, of course, the other one is um, Lars and the Real Girl, which is the fictional version of this movie, basically yes. from like ten years ago. And yeah, so what are you thinking when you say that? When you you said you know you thought about the Tom Hanks film.
0: Well, I mean, certainly my feeling was, you know, I I bring a sort of Jungian lens to things. (laughs) And I think that there is, I think that people are, I think it's a very sad film. I think that a lot of, barring the sort of nursing home subplot, which I think is, as I said, a very different use case with these dolls. But, you know, people's loneliness will drive them to incredible extremes to to find comfort, emotional comfort. And really... Mm -hmm. I think that's what the, the thread mm-hmm. in those characters' stories, mm-hmm. right? And it's like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the main guy was, you know... Um, John, you who's know, married John,
1: to, to Jackie, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. married to his doll. Mm-hmm.
0: Married to his doll. And, you know, he said he was clearly traumatized from his previous relationship. And the the scars and the pain of that has led him to find yeah. a safe alternative Yep. To not be to to not be hurt again. That's how yeah. I interpreted that. No,
1: no no that's very good interpretation yeah.
0: <laughs> but <laughs> but I think that um I think that sort of the the downside to this is that there, there's I think there's different levels of delusion and mm-hmm. self-delusion can be a coping mechanism which it was for these characters. Mm-hmm. but it can also it can also be, Sort of debilitating, and and, and in, a w- in a way, I think that that your film sort of is the intersection of like it's mm-hmm. debilitating it? socially, yeah. but emotionally, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's a it's a useful crutch. And yeah. and then I think that the other thing that interested me in the in that story was the question of judgment, right? Like when you see mm-hmm. him, wa- you know, walking in this park, and people are like, and some at the
1: restaurant, yeah. or, or at
0: the restaurant, right? <laughs> yeah. And it's like. It's like, you know, we're clearly moving into a world of mm-hmm. um, where people feel less comfortable to judge.
1: Mm-hmm. You
0: know, we don't want to judge people. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, that is a slippery slope. And what, what, beca- <laughs> what, what can become acceptable? Mm-hmm. And th- I mean, that this is a very fringe mm-hmm. fetish. Of well, sorts, right? Okay.
1: So I'll address your first question, which was about delusion, which is, um, and of course I had the same, you know, I'm like, come on, you guys, this is like the, the doll is, you're married to the doll and you're taking her everywhere and introducing her to your wife. Like, you know, she's not real, right? Like you, I didn't, you know, I mean, that is very clear that she's not real. And, um, I used in the movie, there's a Dave cat who actually says that. He's like, nah, I know. He's very aware that it's like fantasy and it's not really real. But it still works for him. So, you know, and then on to your... And everyone knew it in that's in the film. They all know it on the... Even on the intellectual level. But it doesn't stop them from wanting to have someone or something to love, right? So they all need that. And whether it's emotional or you know sexual or whatever it might be that is what they wanted or needed so however they get it I'm not going to judge it so well, your question go ahead
0: no i, was I mean, going to say you know, your
1: question about judgment is an interesting conversation right because it's not that I'm judging it's not how can I explain this um I'm not making the judgment call in the film I'm just not judging it at all I'm just telling the story as they see it. Right. So it's up to you or for any viewer in any of my films, including the people who want to be amputees or, you know, any of the other films. I don't make all fringe films or subculture films, but I do make, you know, some of them. But my, you know, my point is to start the conversation we're having, right. That's part of it. It's not for me to judge them, those characters. It's for me to help you learn about them and to decide how you feel.
0: So when you were interviewing um, the the doll maker uh, in in the film, it reminded me of a New York Times article I I think I read several years ago, which basically said that um, you know vi- vibrator sex toys um, are now as common as uh, Tupperware in in households. <laughs> And I have
1: not
0: heard that, but okay. <laughs> Google Google that. I'm I'm sure it's there, but okay. obviously you wouldn't yeah. you wouldn't forget a statistic like that. Um, but I mean, obviously, there's like a very fine line between pe- people that want to have fulfill they, the human urge for some kind of fulfillment and some kind of mechanical means to to, to do it. And I think that mm-hmm. when you really think about the the characters in Silicon Soul through the lens of that they're not as maybe fringe or as freakish as you might initially want to believe because people have That's, rich fantasy lives, right?
1: We all do, don't we? I mean, you know, two, two things about what you just said. And I'm like, for me, having these discussions is so much fun because I think about, well, the psychologist in the film, Danielle Nafo, she told me once that uh this what we're seeing in this film is going to be so normal in 20 years if we're going to be like surprised that there was even a film about it right welcome to the like,
0: metaverse it's...
1: exactly <laughs> <laughs> exactly and i think you know that for me is like all the things we're talking about like the things that you become more acceptable as time goes by right like the tupperware sex thing you just said. Like, hey, that's just the way it is. And to me, this is a film about the future of human relationships because the, it, we're not, this is not going to stop. It's just going to keep going, right? And, and it's like how we deal with that is what, you know, I want these conversations to be. How will you deal with it? How about John's family at Thanksgiving? Like my favorite part of the whole film, you know? I mean, <laughs> he brings Jackie to... You, you know, to Thanksgiving dinner with flowers, and nobody wants to take her flowers. And like, okay, that's everybody's Thanksgiving, right? There's always one relative that you're like, uh, that one's a little off, you know, a little. So what would you do if that was your home? So the whole time, like I was making this film, I kept thinking, what would you do if it was you? What would you do if this was your brother? What would you do if this was your son? What would you do if this is your friend? What would you do if this is your mom? Right. Like, And what would you do if this is your uh, husband? Um, and you're sick and you're you know, you can't have relations with Henry Martin. I mean the whole time I just try to put myself in other people's shoes. So yeah. When I'm making the film, I'm not judging. So the judgmental part can come after. I'm just trying to figure out like how are these people surviving in the world with this, you know, really relatively new thing. But honestly, think about all the things in our lives that we have that we, you know, treat similarly. I mean
0: yeah. Well, look, you know what? I, I think that you, you know you just refer, referred to it as a new thing. But I mean, one of the things that I was actually thinking about while I was watching it is that when children have like a teddy bear or a figurine, it's yeah. really that. But it's weird <laughs> yes. when it's weird when it's people haven't. An- when it's an adult. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. When do we lose that? And who tells us that we're supposed to lose that? And why are we accepting that as a society or not? And you know what? I mean, I am now a dog person. I got a dog a couple of years ago. I treat my dog, that dog has a name. I talk to it like it's a person. You know, it's like, I get it. Like, I mean... We, I mean, people treat their phones that way. They name their cars, like whatever. But I think your teddy bear analogy is really right spot on because it's a security blanket. It makes us feel good. And kids, we encourage that. We encourage that for children. Why don't we have that for adults? So I'm not saying we should. I'm just saying it's one of the things that it's great that you're thinking about that. That's wonderful. And I do try to be nonjudgmental about it. Yeah.
0: Many uh, many years ago, I was at this advertising conference, and Alex Bogusky, who's you know one of the great ad ad guys of our time, was talking about the campaign that he had done for Burger King, uh, one of the campaigns for Burger King, and it was uh, it was called Wake Up with the King, and what they had really done in that campaign was they had taken the kind of um, the advertising figurine that was directed at children for to sell Burger mm-hmm. King. And what they did was they just directed it toward adults and it became this like really creepy thing. Like somebody wakes up in the morning and they're they're in bed with this, this King in a mask. It's like, wake up with the King, you know, two egg, two egg biscuit sandwiches (laughs) for two 99, like whatever. And he, he actually talked about how there's this weird thing that happens when we decide that something is acceptable for children, but then we just Mm -hmm. orient it toward adults Mm -hmm. and, the, the, the strangeness of that, the weirdness of that is mm-hmm. just kind of arresting, mm-hmm. you know. But um, Yeah.
1: And, I mean, I think these are the things I was dealing with while I was filming. I mean, there were times when, you know, yeah, it got a little uncomfortable. I mean, when I was filming Dave Cat and, you know, he's in bed, you know, making out with his doll. I'm like, mm, I think I that's enough. And I have I have plenty. And he's like, are you sure you don't want to keep going? I'm like, no, 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 that's okay. You know, I mean, it might be acceptable to you or for me to help tell your story, but I don't need to film all of that to get the point across that you are having relations with her and also the part about, you know, the part that makes everybody really uncomfortable about how you clean the dolls.
0: Sure. Um, I'll, I'll move along to a, to a question beyond, beyond this. We okay. can leave this subject now. Yeah. who, 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 who are some of the filmmakers and, and storytellers that have influenced you and, and the work that you do?
1: Well, you know, um, that's a really uh, hard question because I, like I said, I don't go, I didn't go to film school. Um, I'm just like a storyteller and I kind of mix and match and pull things from different people. But there was a moment back in when I remember I told you earlier that I was a journalist and I'm like, OK, I, I'm starting to do these longer form stories um, at this TV station I was working at and I was really enjoying it. And I thought oh, I could do this. I can do this. But how am I going to do this? And I went to a screening of this film. I mean, I'm talking like 20 years ago now. <laughs> it was a long time ago. Um, and the film was called Dark Days. And it was a film about a guy who went underground the Amtrak train station in New York City and was like lived with the homeless people under there. Didn't just show up like he lived with them. And he uh, his name is Mark Singer. And um, I just remember being so blown away by that film because that kind of dedication is like, I don't know that I have that kind of dedication to a story, right? Like, I'm not living with these people. But when I saw the film and what he did was, you know, he he made an underground life and he filmed this underground life of domestic. Right. It was like everybody had their little home and they had power from like the Amtrak train station and they had cooking and they made dinner together. And, you know, it was just like a full underground world. And of course, there are a lot of problems down there. But he focused on the things that make us human, right? And I mean, I have not seen this film in so long. I don't even know if it's available anywhere, but um, it had such an impact on me because that's when I decided, well, I can do this. I, I, I might never be, you know, a 10 as a filmmaker, but I have the same ideas about things, about humanizing, about the human experience, about wanting to go places where other people don't get to go, about telling stories that people don't know about. Like I, that stuff... Really hit home for me when I saw that film. And, you know, before that, my, my men, I mean, the people I admired were, you're going to think I'm crazy, but people like Barbara Walters, who asked all these questions and made people uncomfortable, right? I love that. <laughs> I'm like, go Barbara, you know, and mm-hmm. getting the real story. Like, that was really powerful for me. And then after that moment, I just basically started watching every documentary I could get my hand on. But I also was very careful about not wanting to emulate somebody specifically I just felt like I'll find my own way in the world and that's pretty much what I did I mean I still mm-hmm. watch a ton of docs but like while I was making Silicon Soul people were telling me about other films oh, you should watch this or My Strange Addiction or this I'm like no I want to find my own version of that story and and if I there is no film about like it doesn't stop me like if I hear oh someone's already making a film about that I don't care I'm going to do my version of that so um, and I do I teach documentary history as part of my you know um teaching rotation sometimes in documentary production and i think about a lot of these things and i present other people's work and i'm always like should i even be presenting that work to people who are just trying to find their own voice so i feel like i just um you know that one film was just like such a turning point for me when i saw it It was so pure and it was shot in black and white and it was shot on film and i didn't know anything about either one and there's another whole backstory backstory which is you know uh Actually, he ended up having the people who were underground with him help him make the film. So that was like, anyway, I, I mean, getting that immersive it was very powerful for me.
0: Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting to me that there is such an appetite for people in media arts to mm-hmm. unearth humanity. Like, like that is really like the value of, of any film, of any book, of any TV show, any character, you know, music. And what
1: you do and what you're doing, too. You're unearthing the story. Yeah, advertising
0: as well. Advertising as well. The the, the true value of it is there's such an appetite for people people to see a mirror held up to themselves and Mm -hmm. to see a part of their experience, uh, their condition, the human condition. And yet it's so hard to get there.
1: It's funny that you say this because I have been, I mean, I can tell you, I have been hired by ad agencies from time to time to do, you know, documentary style work for them because it's the authentic voice that everybody wants now. Right. They want the real story. But yet, you know, in the ad world, they still it's like hard for them to like, well, you know, you have to include this product and you have to put that person in there or whatever. So the best, you know, campaigns are the ones that don't really even show the the product it's about a feeling now right mm-hmm. on those mm-hmm. things and so if I can go out and help a client like you know with their content their branded content to help tell a story about a feeling I love doing that because they don't really know how to do it <laughs> like
0: yeah, yeah. All, L- Lauren you know, Lauren, Lauren Greenfield yes
1: yeah, she's she's a great example of yeah that.
0: yeah like I think I think we hired my old agency Paul's agency um you know we had hired Lauren Greenfield to make a documentary about for Stoffers about dinner, you know, family, what's dinner time look like? You know, that's, that's an, that's an ad idea.
1: And she's, she made a film about a castle, the, right? The queen, she made a film about a queen and she made a film about, you know, the same thing. You're like, wait, stopher? I mean, but it works. So you, you know sure. what I'm talking about. And I think that's, you know, we're all craving stories that we can relate to. And I don't always make those stories. But my favorite thing is that the students who watched Silicone Stole the other day afterwards, they were like, I didn't want to watch it at first. And then when they were done, they're like, I'm telling everybody to watch it now because I like to make things that turn people's minds around. I'm not selling you anything. I'm not telling you what I think. I'm not making you like um, join, go save the whales. It's nothing like that. I just want people to like do what we're doing. Like have conversations. So that's when I know I've succeeded, right? Not... You know, I'm not selling anything. I know a lot of doc filmmakers do, and and for them, bravo for them, snap, snap. But you know, they're the ones that are getting the awards and the Oscars and all that.
0: I want to talk about collaboration. Um, so this is sort of a two-part question. What does collaboration look like within the context of of making a documentary, and who else's creative or critical perspectives come to bear on on the stories that you're telling?
1: hmm Oh, very good questions. Um, collaboration. I'm very small team. Um, it's usually me and an editor that I love working with. And it's typically someone I've worked with before um, or am willing to try something new because I can tell just from meeting them. And, you know, like the editor on Silicon Soul was actually a recent graduate of uh, Northwestern University and he like moved to Minneapolis, and he did for love, and he didn't have any work. And I met with him, and I was like, I said, "Hey, I am working on something new. Do you want to? Like, I can give you some footage, and you can edit something for me, and you know, one day, and let me see what you do." And it's exactly five o'clock. He sent he sent me, you know, an edit from a scene, and I'm like, I can work with this guy, right? I had no idea if he would end up being the editor, but he did. So it's usually typically one person, a lot of back and forth. Um I in my earlier films I made the rough cuts um and then I would get an editor on the back end to sort of tweak it for me. Um and now I do not cut my own films myself anymore, although I do miss it. Um it's it's not practical for me to do that anymore. And so like when working with an editor right now on um the two projects I'm working on, and one is like I'm just she knows what i want i gave her the footage here are my scenes you make them okay <laughs> like, i trust people so much it's such a great feeling right and then she'll present some things to me I'm like oh this doesn't quite work and what about that sound bud and what about this little piece of audio and this net and that. but that's all it is it's like what we're doing here we're just we meet back and forth then i get another cut and then it gets uploaded and i look at it so that part is the fun part, right? But the hard part... Oh, and then same thing like, you know, when you get the composers involved and, well, you know this process, you get the other people involved to, to finish the product. And that part I hate because when you get toward the end, the storytelling is the fun part for me. But, the, but when you have to prepare something for a national or an international broadcast, that's where all the little details like, mm-hmm. Oh, you know, everything from it has to, every the sound has to be checked and run through a system for broadcast quality. And the same with the video and then and everything, get all the, the transcripts, ready, Everything ready. That part I hate more than anything. But what happens is the middle part where you said, who else, who else controls this so or contributes or contributes. Contributes. Okay. So yeah, of course. The the usual people, the composers, the um, you know, there may be a producer that comes in to do rough cut screenings with me, but you know, I do directing, producing, I do it all. So it's like it's also hard sometimes to bring other people in when I know what I want, right? But I do um I think what happens is if you work like I I always work with a sales agent, or I have until recently. Uh, worked with a sales agent or a distributor who will do like, hey, you know, if you want me to sell this, you might have to take this out. Or I love the film, Mm -hmm. but... Right. And that I hate also. (laughs) So, You know, most of the times once it gets in the film festival system, I don't have to do anything anymore because the film is a success. Once it's in Doc NYC or once it's in, um, you know, these festivals that you mentioned, it's all a success. It's been vetted and people take it and they love it. It's just the preparation along the way that's a problem. And I don't work like so far. Nobody has... um, how do I explain it? Like there are networks that will hire you, not hire you, they give you development funding to make a film. And then, but then their hand is all over it. Right. Oh, They're I basically, see. yeah. And so I avoid that like the plague until I'm farther along. Got it. I'm telling you, I, it's not up my alley to do that. It's just not because, you know, I, I just, my, my way of creating things is I need to create it first Instead of having a zillion people early on telling me, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? So if I can create it first or at least part of it or most of it, then I'm more willing to bring in collaborators at that point.
0: Got it, got it. That's 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 good to hear. I, I um, sound
1: like the person you don't want to work with, right? <laughs> no,
0: no, you're the person that I do want to work with because it sounds like you have integrity, you know? And yeah, I
1: think and I think that's the problem because once you get money from certain people, you're like you're in their pocket and you have to right. do what they ask you to do. <laughs> so you don't have a choice.
0: Exactly, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. So in today's New York Times, David Brooks wrote a great opinion piece called What the Beatles Tell Us About Fame where he basically acknowledges the importance of creative people having early advocates and champions early on in their careers. Who are some of the people who've helped guide your success and what have they contributed along the way?
1: So um, I guess I never really had uh, mentors. I had people along the way who I discovered or they discovered me and have been in my life for a long time. Like, the very first time I went to a like, the, you know, this is a business. So you go to these like business meetings. They're called markets. And, you know, it's like where people sell books, except they're selling documentaries. And there was a guy who was famous in all the panels and everybody wanted Jan. Like if if, if you could get Jan to be your agent, you know, you had it made because he only took 10 films a year. And like when I first started with Married at the Mall, I thought, oh, Jan's going to love me. He's going to love Married at the Mall. And I didn't know anything about anything And no, (laughs) very small was not for Jan. um, And anyway, long story short, years later, Jan did take one of my films. And I was like, wow, I have really made it now. And so he's been someone who's been in my life a long time. He's been very helpful and supportive and has, you know, repped my films and sold my films. And I see him at events and stuff. And he's recently mostly retired now, but he's been a great, uh, person along the way to so, kind of just let me know I'm doing things right, <laughs> and not just my films. Some of the films that I've also produced for other people, he's he's taken. So I know we have a you know nice relationship there.
0: It's time to play false equivalence. New York or New Orleans?
1: Oh, that's torture. That's... <laughs> Today I would say New Orleans. Yet last week I would say New York.
0: Okay. Oprah Winfrey or Barbara
1: Walters? (laughs) That's not fair because I was on Oprah Winfrey and I have a story I can tell you about that, but I wanted to be Barbara Walters. So you're doing, this is hard. Um, Well, Barbara Walters isn't doing it anymore. So Oprah.
0: Barbie dolls or Cabbage Patch Kids?
1: (laughs) Definitely Barbie dolls because they've gotten very hip lately. There's a filmmaker Barbie doll and I want one. If anybody out there listening, please send me one. I can't find it anymore.
0: Carol King or Carly Simon?
1: Oh, this is the easiest question of all. Carol King.
0: Here's a good one from Jesse Baklava or Banitsa? Banitsa. Huh?
1: <laughs> <Funny stuff. laughs>
0: Wristwatches or ankle bracelets?
1: <laughs> I, how is that? A female storyteller question.
0: Oh no, that's only because of Hole.
1: Oh, okay. Um <laughs> no answer.
0: Okay. Um yeah. Nexium or One Taste.
1: <laughs> oh my god. Well that's okay. Nexium.
0: Nexium. <laughs> Errol Morris or Lauren Greenfield?
1: Lauren Greenfield, come on.
0: Auntie Anne's or Cinnabon?
1: Neither. Don't do dairy. Don't do cake. Don't do don't do pretzels.
0: Don't do any of that stuff. Alright. I just thought like hang if on. If I
1: had to pick, I would say Auntie Anne, but yeah.
0: Spending time at a mall, <laughs> I would have thought, you know, you would have a preference. <laughs> I know, anyway. I
1: knew that would work. <laughs> I mean if you asked me about like this today, it's definitely neither. But if I had to pick, I would definitely say the anti
0: Okay. All right. Um, NPR or IFC?
1: I mean, it, it, they depend on the length of time, right? So mm-hmm. IFC is like a short-term thing. NPR is a lifeline, lifelong thing. So that's not really equivalent. Well, it's a false equivalent.
0: Right. <laughs> 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 okay. So the one final question. Um, had you not gone down this path, to becoming a documentary filmmaker, uh, what would you be doing?
1: Oh, my God. I love that question. And no one ever asks me that. So I will tell you the answer. So I grew up in retail. My dad owned clothing stores. He owned like a whole bunch of stores, all in the Washington, D.C. area. And I worked in those stores growing up. And he used to take me on buying trips to New York to help pick like the clothes for the stores for the young people, right? Like, like I had hot pants, like I had. Oh yeah, I mean, I was like, and I got to pick. I'm like, oh yeah, that shirt's good. That's shirt. so. I probably would have been a clothes buyer for.
0: <laughs> what what store <laughs> was this? Store? What store? Oh, was this that? is
1: all in Washington. Um, So it started with my grandma. And my grandpa, the store was called Shirley's and it was in right in downtown DC on G Street and it was originally for the few like women secretaries like that worked on you know in uh government. And so it was the first like working woman clothes store and then after that it just blossomed into it was everything like we had a store in Georgetown called The Village gate or villager or something like palacio they all had different names there was one in um then they were in malls all around and then but my favorite one was the one in silver spring um at the time and now it's right across that store was right across from where the movie theater is there now and i used to go there and i would do the windows maybe i would have been a window decorator i love decorating the windows Hmm, yeah, that's cool. or I would have owned stores. I don't know. I mean, I was supposed to inherit the business, but my dad and my brothers, I have two brothers and we were, you know, always being groomed to like take over the stores. But then the business went bankrupt and like, you know, in during the recession of the 80s. So hmm. 70s, 80s. So there went that. So and I decided I didn't want to do retail at that point. Like I like telling stories. So.
0: Well retail isn't probably the best business to be in these days anyway, so it's 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 all meant to be
1: oh I know, but I loved it. I was on the sa- I was on the floor they call it on the floor you know selling I was a sales girl when I was like twelve and these women would come in and you know ask me for advice you know what they should wear and I knew all the stuff really well and um I learned a lot about psychology and about getting people to open up to you tell you their stories. These women would tell me their stories. I didn't even want to know them, but they would tell me. And I realized I sort of had this ability to get people to tell me things. And so I just started doing that more, I guess. I learned it on the floor, on the sales floor. <laughs> I don't know. But that is probably, I definitely would have ended up doing something in retail, I think.
0: No, I think, I think Melody, I think you are living your truth, living your dream. And if I hear correctly between the lines of what you've said, there's a spirit inside of you that wants to create things and leave it behind you. And I think that that is really what makes creative people creative people.
1: Yeah, that's probably true, because if you can do that, it's like people always say, which is your favorite film? I mean, there are so many films we didn't even talk about, you know, Girl, Who Can't Feel Pain, People Get Married at the Mall, you know, Walter Mondale, former vice president of the United States, uh, you know, you name it. I mean, I did all these things. Right. And people always ask me, which is your favorite one? I was like, are you kidding? They're all babies. Like, they're, they're all, babies. all your children. Like, you can't pick your favorite child. So it's easier to just say, you go watch it. You have a conversation about it. And let me know how that conversation went. And then I can go make something else.
0: That's cool. That's cool. Anyway, thank you so much.
1: Oh, thank you. This was so much fun.
0: To learn more about the CLL podcast and its guests, please visit creativelifelessons.co. Creative Life Lessons was created by Penn Lee and Lyle Schemmer and is executive produced by Paul Greco and Jack Bradley. Audio engineering and voiceover provided by Jesse Marks. No part of this podcast may be reproduced in whole or in part in any manner without the permission of CLL Productions.